Did the Constitution bring Republican government to America? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. You can find all of those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show, of course, by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And, of course, you can purchase one or 20 of my classes there. All of that keeps this podcast free of charge. Also, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. If you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a comment there. It helps the algorithm. All of that will help support the show and get more ears and eyes on the program. All right. Well, let's talk about the topic, and that is Republican government in America. And this was a piece that was at Mises.org, and then later LewRockwell.com republished it. And it's by Ryan McMakin. Now, I've had, uh, I did a show on Ryan McMakin in Secession, and I have my issues with McMakin in that he, there are homegrown American intellectual backing for this, right? There, there, I mean, there's Americans that advocate these things, and he always seems to go out and find, you know, Mises or, I mean, Rothbard, of course, is American, but there are some antebellum examples. The problem with McMakin is that these people are generally in the South, and he doesn't want to talk about them because, of course, uh, he thinks that would lead to all kinds of bad words. I mean, that's the same thing the neoconservatives do. It's the same thing the Straussians do. you got to find the heroes that are palatable to the left to make this something that people are going to want to do. Well, look, when federalism nullification, secession, when all these things are advocated by Southerners longer than anyone else, you need to talk about them. And they were right, at least in what they were saying about American government. So what's wrong with saying they were right? Well, of course, the problem is people are going to charge you with, again, bad words, simply because you can pull things out and say, well, these people were right about this, may not agree with them on this, but they were right about this. What's the difference of saying a leftist is right about something or you know, even a neocon is right about something. Look, even a broken clock is right twice a day. So w- sometimes these people can be right. I mentioned, you know, last week when Jerry Nadler, I actually agree with Jerry Nadler on the Pledge of Allegiance. He can be right. A, blo- a broken clock can be right twice a day. So let's talk about this piece. It's about Republican government. And this is very important for people to understand. And I'm going to do two episodes this week on secession or at least American government in one way or another. And we're going to talk about Abraham Lincoln this week, too. And we're also going to look at a crazy leftist notion of the 13th Amendment. We got some really good stuff this week. But um, when you look at American government, and people will talk about the United States government as being the savior of democracy or republicanism or whatever it is, they don't really understand American government. And McMakin does a nice job bringing that up in this piece that I'm going to get into. But Republican government existed in America before the Constitution was written and ratified. Republican government existed as early as 1619 in Virginia. 
And when I say that, that's the first time you had an elected assembly in North America, which is Republican government. Now, we did have a monarchy at that point. So if you want to compare a monarchy to a government that does not have a monarchy and say if you have a monarchy, it's not Republican, well, you're going to have some issues with that because you could say that even the Roman mixed constitution or some of the Greek examples were Republican in form, even if they had a monarchical element. In fact, when you go back and look at Aristotle and you look at his ideal republic or you know his ideal government, well, it was a mixed government and it had certain elements in it that were essentially monarchical. So this idea of having you know these, these kind of checks and balances and different kinds of systems in a government to protect the various interests in society is nothing new. But Americans had Republican government long before the United States Constitution was ratified in 1788. In fact, we have to get our terms right. So this is kind of a, an episode where we can talk about terms. We don't have a national republic in the United States, and to say it is to misname the United States. We have a federal republic. A federal republic. It's a republic of republics. Every state already has a republican form of government. In fact, when you look at state constitutions, it's required for states, not just by the U.S. Constitution, but the states themselves in their own written constitutions have republican governments. So if you're looking to preserve republican governments, as long as you preserve the state governments, you're going to be fine. What is a Republican government? Well, to the founding generation, they often said that Republican governments were generally governments that did not have monarchy. They were a representative form of democracy. It didn't mean that they didn't have oligarchic systems in place or anti-democratic systems. They had representative systems. So they weren't direct democracies, meaning that people can vote directly on legislation at hand. Though we do have some of these procedures now in place in many states. You have referendum, you have recall, you have initiative, ballot initiatives. These are direct democracy techniques that became very popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and states have adopted a lot of them. It gives people direct control over the types of programs and policies and even taxes that states can pass. The problem with those, of course, is that the federal government, the federal court system often invalidates these because of incorporation, which is Again, something else we're going to talk about this week. It's a stupid idea that has no basis in fact, uh, no matter what Randy Barnett on the right says or a bunch of dopes on the left. Incorporation is a false doctrine. But we have Republican systems in place at the state and local level. In fact, you could argue more Republican in place than at the federal level. And this has to do, of course, with representative ratio. You've got at the federal level now a representative ratio of over about 750,000 to 1 in the House of Representatives. It's, it's unworkable. You can't have a Republican system with that kind of quote-unquote representation. It doesn't work. That's not real representation. Remember, if you don't know this, or maybe you do know this, but in the waning days of the Philadelphia Convention, George Washington uh, said that the representative ratio in the House of Representatives should be dropped from 40,001 to 30,001 because 40,001 was not good representation for a Republican system. And of course, we know that uh, we're sitting at way beyond that now. I mean, it's well, you've got a representative ratio that far out of whack. We don't really have a Republican system anymore. And we see it every single day because we have, of course, special interests dominating 
uh, the United States Congress. We know that the Congress themselves doesn't often write the bills that they pass. They don't even read the bills. One of the things that the <clears throat> Republicans ensured that Mike, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Speaker McCarthy had to um, had to agree to was a uh, the ability for to have a, a waiting period before bills could be passed, kind of a, a reading period that people could actually look at the bills, because we know that the Democrats are just simply ramming stuff through because it didn't matter. The party said vote for the bill, do it. This is the best thing for the D's. The R's are going to oppose it, but it's the best thing for the D's. And look, the Republicans would do some of this stuff too. So the 20 people that held out and enforced the Speaker of the House, current Speaker of the House, McCarthy, to go out and have these rules in place that would allow for more discussion about these bills was very important. And some other things they did too. The 20 people were heroic that blocked McCarthy's nomination for as many ballots as they did. It was fantastic stuff. So we've got a system that's supposedly Republican-informed, that's not very Republican-informed. We know the states have much more Republican government, even in a state out of whack like California, where you have about 200, I think 250,000 to one ratio. It's still better than the U.S. Congress. You still have more representation in California as an individual citizen than you do at the, at the federal level. And in some cases, uh, when you look at, say, you know, one, one of your small New England states, I mean, um, at the state level, you're talking about, uh, in s- certain instances, two or 3,000 to one for a representative ratio. That's real representative government. So uh, in my own home state, the representative ratio is about 35,000 to one for the state government, which, again, according to George Washington and the founding generation, was good representative government. Now, of course, the argument against, and it's a pretty strong argument, let me say this, against having that kind of representative ratio is that the general government only does general things. And this was actually brought up. Well, we don't need real strong representative government at the federal level because all it can do is commerce and defense. It's not really there to do much of anything else. If you want to talk about your school board or you want to talk about your police or you want to talk about all these domestic concerns, your jails, your health care, all of that stuff, all of that is done at the state level. It's not really for the federal government to get involved. But what we've done after 1865, which of course is why we're going to talk about Abraham Lincoln this week, but another part of that. But Lincoln is the shift. The Lincoln administration is a shift because we start nationalizing power. And this is essentially what Randy Barnett argues with the 14th Amendment. It nationalizes everything. And so now every issue becomes a federal issue. Well, you take away representative government when you do that. Unless you've got a lot of cash on hand, those members of Congress really don't care what you think. They don't. There are a few that have a nice interaction with um, their constituents. And I'll even say it's on the left and the right. There are people that have that. But for the most part, these people are so aloof, they just really don't care about their constituents. They care about their own power, their own celebrity status, what they can get on TV, and what they can say in a soundbite. It's absolutely ridiculous. Our Congress is a circus. It's a joke. It's theater. That's all it is. And I mentioned you know, last week about Joe Biden, the State of the Union. One thing I can say is that the Congress, for the first time, really resembled a parliament in Joe Biden's State of the Union address because of the way that the Congress interacted with the president. It was more like having a prime minister there than anything else. So if we're going to have that system, well, let's have that system. But we would need to revamp the entire system. And let me tell you, there are a lot of political scientists out there. I, I, I took classes with them as an undergraduate who have been 
itching for that for years. They don't like the federal system that we have. They don't like federalism at all. They don't like this uh, very anti-democratic system that's set up in Washington. They want something that's more in line with, say, the British Parliament. But what they don't realize is that we've got a monstrosity of a territory and a lot more people than the, than the British have. And, of course, any European state. I mean, the United States is a monstrosity. It cannot be governed as... I mean, Montesquieu pointed out, by one centralized power without it being despotic. This is very important. So what the founders designed was a federal republic. So all of that said, let me get into this piece by McMakin. And the title is, Why the 1787 Constitution Did Not Bring Republican Government to America. He begins by saying, One of the many myths that schoolchildren are taught in the name of American exceptionalism is the idea that the Americans finally embraced a Republican form of government at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. This, we are told, was revolutionary. Let me stop there. Um, I think that if you're a conservative, this is, the, this is what you're going to get. And people do ignore, as he's going to get into, the Articles of Confederation and, of course, the state constitutions. That doesn't matter. Essentially, what you're getting here is a very nationalist telling of the tale of American history. And it starts really with 1787. In fact, what's fascinating to me about this is that um, if you look at, say, Rand McNally's atlas, or you look at when you go to historic sites, museums, there's one near me that does this. They will say that a state became a state in 1788 or 1789, whenever it was that they, or 1787, whenever it was they ratified the Constitution. That's when they became a state. And in my area, they would say that, well, they, re they were a state again uh, after the war was over in the 1860s or 1870s. So they weren't a state anymore, but then they were a state. This, this comes down to the belief that the central government creates the states. That's, I mean, this is based on that entire premise. If you said that these weren't states before 1787 or 1788 or 1789, the case of North Carolina or... 1791, in the case of Rhode Island, if you, if you said they weren't states, then you don't understand American government. They were states, according to Thomas Jefferson, in 1774. Heck, Patrick Henry was saying Virginia was its own country in 1765. I mean, Jefferson was calling all of these states, the original 13 states, states in 1774 in the Summer Review, and he was also calling them countries, which is amazing. So McMakin says this, the usual narrative goes something like this. In ancient times, the world saw the rise of republics in Italy and Greece. The Roman Republic was notable for its virtue and its status as a government of the people. But the Roman Republic, like the small Greek republics, was but short-lived and was destroyed by the temptations of empire and despotism. But then came the so-called American experiment. This new noble experiment sprang up when Americans' great men met at Philadelphia in 1787 to hand down to Americans a new republic, something revolutionary and innovative in the face of a world ruled by crowned heads. This story is often accompanied by a well-worn anecdote about Benjamin Franklin. He usually goes like this. Philadelphia, 1787. The delegates to the Constitutional Convention are just leaving Independence Hall, having decided on the general structure for the new United States. A crowd has gathered on the steps of Independence Hall, eager to hear the news. A sturdy old woman, sometimes referred to as an anxious lady, wearing a shawl, 
approached Benjamin Franklin and asked him, Well, doctor, what do we have, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin replied sagely, A republic, if you can keep it. Now, again, a great little anecdote. Number one, we don't have a constitutional convention. We had, the, we had the Philadelphia Convention. That's what it was called. Or the Federal Convention, but not the Constitutional Convention because nobody really knew if we were going to even have this thing. So we can call it that now, but looking back, it was the Philadelphia Convention. Yeah, because it was held in Philadelphia. I mean, that's what people called it. Just like you had the Annapolis Convention before that. I mean, this is how people refer to these things. He says, most of my readers will surely have heard this little anecdote many times. The subtext here is that the United States had invented something altogether new with the Constitution of 1787. Now, I could say that you could read that into this, but of course, in this little story, the woman asks a dichotomy, a monarchy or a republic. And Franklin says, we, we have a republic. He didn't say we invented a republic. He just said, we have a republic, if you can keep it. So, he wasn't suggesting we didn't have Republican government before that. He's answering the question directly. So you can say that there is this that there's this creationism, this American exceptionalism, but also you could say he's answering the question of the dichotomy, of the choices. Is it a monarchy or is it a republic? And he says it's a republic. Now, it's not a centralized republic. It's not the French state. We don't have a central or national republic. We have a federal republic. Now, he doesn't say that, and of course, that would have been the proper answer to this question. Because that's what we have. It's what we always had in the United States. The story suggests that in the late 1780s, Americans were not yet sure if they had the fortitude for a republic or if they would return to being a monarchy. Fortunately, the sagacious founding fathers decided we would be Republicans after all. As propaganda, this story has been remarkably effective. For many Americans, at least those who received some sort of education, the propaganda, propaganda seems quite plausible. After all, weren't the French and the English ruled by despotic kings in the late 18th century? Wasn't George Washington offered a position as King of America? Apparently, whether or not the United States would be a republic remained an open question. Now, again, this idea of a, a dichotomy, republic against monarchy, a representative form or a monarchical form. One of the things that, of course, the Constitution creates is an executive branch that has a lot of powers. And this is one of the majorly contentious parts of the Constitution. If you take my originalist papers class at McClanahan Academy, it's 101 documents in favor of ratification that I go through. And monarchy or the executive branch is one of the big issues. The other, of course, is the powers of the states because they wanted to ensure that the states maintained control of this general government in a federal republic. And that's what McMakin does get into here. He says it's a nice tale, but it's fundamentally wrong in light of the political realities of 1780s. This is obvious when we consider two facts. The first is that by the time the 1787 convention took place, the lands of the former British colonies were already a thoroughly republican place. All of the U.S. states, plus the neighboring Republic of Vermont, had already adopted Republican constitutions. The Philadelphia Convention had nothing to do with it. The second problem for the myth is that in 1787, the United States overall already had a Republican constitution. The so-called Articles of Confederation have been adopted in 1776. Well, that's not true. They weren't adopted until 1783. John Dickinson wrote them in 1776, but they weren't officially ratified until basically the end of the war. They had kind of you know, moved into operation by 1781, but it took time. 
It took nearly till the end of the American War for Independence all the states to get on board with this. And thus, there was nothing revolutionary or innovative about adopting a second Republican Constitution in 1787. Now, I agree with all of that. We already had Republican Constitutions in the states. Though, if you look at some of the New England states, they simply maintain their colonial charter. And uh, this was seen as a problem for some uh, with that colonial charter, that it was um, you know, maybe not that Republican in form, but you did have that, right? So there was, a, there was a legislature. It wasn't a monarchy. You did have Republican governments in, uh, in the British North American colonies, now United States, and then the states themselves. As Jefferson said, they were already states in 1776. But um, this is true. You had Republican governments here. So he's correct about that. And the Articles of Confederation was a Republican form. It was Republican. The states were represented in the government. And there was an election for the people that went to the Congress and the Articles, Articles of Confederation. It was the Republican government. So he says, in other words, all Americans in 1787 already lived in a constitutional republic at both the state level and federal level. It was a federal republic, not a constitutional republic, but a federal republic. They already lived in it, and they already had Republican governments. They had written constitutions at the state level for all of these states, too. So no, the Founding Fathers most certainly did not invent or create a new experiment of republicanism in any way. This is true. They knew, they knew the new thing that they were trying to do was carry out a counter-revolution and superimpose a large and expansive national state apparatus over the American republics that already existed. This new government would impose taxes at higher rates than the old monarchy ever had. Unfortunately, the counter-revolutionaries succeeded. Now, this gets into, was the new Constitution oppressive? Um, if you look at the way the Constitution was argued during ratification, if you follow that Constitution, it wouldn't have been impressive uh, at all. Oppressive. It, 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 in fact, it was argued over and over again, the states would actually tax more than the central power because the states would do all the functions that were necessary for local concerns. And the federal taxes would be so minimal, you'd barely even, barely even pay attention to them. And in fact, you have to remember that the United States government obtained all of its revenue off of tariffs. All of it. And a few excise taxes here and there. That was their entire revenue-producing apparatus. They didn't have an income tax. They didn't have anything that we have today. The taxes were light and minimal. And uh, I would say not oppressive at all. This is why when people start arguing in the 1820s and 1830s against a tariff, that was jacked up to points that uh, were not even that high compared to what the tariff was in the late 19th century, people were upset about it because it was, a ta it was taxing at a level that they didn't think was just because they didn't have a tax like that. You got a tariff, a, a revenue slash protective tariff in 1816, but you got to think that's you know, nearly 30 years after the general government goes into operation. You did have Alexander Hamilton promoting tariffs uh, with his uh, financial plan in the 1790s. But again, these were light taxes. There was a carriage tax. These were light taxes compared to what we're paying today. Um, there was a taxing power. You did tax the people directly, but it wasn't oppressive. And I think that to say this thing was impressive from the, uh, oppressive from the beginning is to uh, go a little bit too far in that direction. 
But why invent a myth in which the new Constitution was somehow responsible for making the United States a republic? At least part of the motivation here surely stems from the fact that the myth minimizes the state's role in creating the republic. By ignoring the fact that the states laid the groundwork for republican government, the myth can instead push the narrative that the Federalists and their strong new central government gave America a republican system of government. This top-down creation myth erases the bottom-up reality. Moreover, the myth helps to obscure the fact that the United States was originally intended to be a voluntary confederation of republics and not, a, not simply a republic. Now, again, th the centralized national republic is important, but you don't really start hearing that in any way until the 1860s uh, with the Lincoln administration. And again, Lincoln's birthday is this week. So with the Lincoln administration, you start, or uh, it was a couple weeks ago, but Regardless, President's Day, right? Um, so you start hearing this myth a lot. Um, you got Washington's birthday this week. But you start hearing this myth a lot um, after the Lincoln administration. So then he says the, con the states were already, already Republican before the new Constitution. The reality of America's earlier reputation origins is, ironically enough, related by Federalist John Adams, while he was American ambassador in London in the 1780s, Adams began work on his tome, A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States of America. This was completed before the Philadelphia Convention, and it was not written to defend the new 1787 Constitution at all. Rather, Adams wrote the book to defend America's state constitutions from claims, largely made by A.R.J. Turgot, that these state constitutions weren't sufficiently Republican. Adams contended the state constitutions were indeed Republican, and he addressed these charges with extended discussions of what qualified a polity as a republic. Adams did this by drawing upon a number of examples of past and then present republics that shared many of the same characteristics of the American republics. And this is true. I mean, this is what John Adams is doing. He's looking at the entire polity of the United States, the entire system in the state constitutions, and he's saying the Republican. Now, you did have people like John Taylor of Caroline who would essentially say Adams was still a monarchist. And uh, he would respond to Adams's book with his own that got into the federal system and, of course, the U.S. Constitution. But um, this is important uh, to, to think about how uh, we had uh, these people debating what kind of Republican system we would have. What does Republicanism mean and how important is that for good government moving forward? He says, Adams' views are rather commonsensical. For decades, many American colonies functioned under constitutions that were nearly Republican, with only a minor role for the monarch. They were, to use a phrase employed by Adams, monarchical republics. As the American war to secede from Britain wore on, however, the Americans in the former colonies adopted new constitutions that were explicitly and obviously Republican. Some were radically so. Pennsylvania's new 1776 constitution, for example, abolished property requirements. Any adult male taxpayer was eligible to both vote and hold office. So again, this is what I mentioned at the top. Yes, this is true, right? You, you had monarchical republics. Adams is correct about this. And then you had republics. 1619, you already had this in Virginia. Adams thought Pennsylvania's reforms were too much too democratic, but the fact is its constitution was republican in any case. The same year, Virginia adopted a republican constitution, which employed the idea of a Bill of Rights. The last of this new wave of Republican constitutions came in 1778 in Massachusetts. That constitution was largely written by Adams himself and is reputedly the oldest written constitution still in effect today. 
Like Virginia's Constitution, Massachusetts's Constitution contained a Bill of Rights, including an influential provision protecting private gun ownership. Adams had actually drafted a couple of constitutions. That was the second one. And uh, the first one, which is amazing, was actually a pro-slavery document. And this one was not. And of course, it was used eventually to invalidate slavery in the state of Massachusetts. But all of this is correct. McMakin is not saying anything that's incorrect here. All of this history is there. We had Republican constitutions. We had Republican systems. All of this was in place. This is why when you look at the United States, as he says, from the bottom up, the states create the central authority. We already had Republican governments. We just had another layer of Republican governments, but in a federal republic. In fact, Hamilton used that term, confederated republic, in the Federalist Essays. He used it. So confederated and federal carried the same meaning. These constitutions proved to be models for those who wrote the new proposed constitution in 1787. It was most certainly not the other way around, and the state certainly didn't rely on the Federalists to set the stage for an American republic. It was the state constitutions, after all, that put in writing many of the basic structures that later showed up in the 1787 constitution. These include Bill of Rights, bicameral legislatures, and provisions for the separation of powers. These were all in place more than a decade before the ratification of the new constitution at Philadelphia. Yet we are to believe that the delegates' thinking was somehow revolutionary. And again, he's kind of creating a, a straw man here in some ways. There's a little, the, the argument's just a little bit weak. It's, he's operating from a position where people would say none of that stuff exists. And you're certainly going to find people that teach American government and historians, even establishment ones, well-known ones, who would operate from that position. But what the left has done more recently, which is actually important and uh, not so subtle, is that they said, all right, all this is true. All of this is true. But the 14th Amendment changes it all. You see, no matter what McMakin says, he's right. All, look, you can be right about the original 1787 Constitution. You can be right about the states creating the central authority. You can be right about federalism. Up to 1868, when the United States ratifies, supposedly, the 14th Amendment, and then we have a national government, and all this stuff is irrelevant. That's just what they do. Okay, yeah, you're right. All of this is true, but then we have this. Now, the key to that, of course, this is why the 14th Amendment, and understanding what the 14th Amendment was supposed to do, and then what the courts have said it does, is very important, because the 14th Amendment was not supposed to destroy federalism or the structure of the general government in any way. But that's essentially what happened, because the courts said it did. So then he says America was already a republic under the Articles of Confederation. He says it's, inco it's an incoherent narrative, to say the least, yet the myth is still employed to extol the alleged greatness of the federal government. Last week at the conservative site American Greatness, for example, political scientist Elizabeth Eastman, after repeating the old A Republic If You Can Keep It nugget, claimed that the new U.S. Constitution laid the foundation for a republic, a form of government that had never been present in America at a national level. And again, this is the, <laughs> this is the problem with the conservatives, quote-unquote, because they get into this Lincolnian myth-making nonsense, right? And, and this is, the conservatives really are the problem here. The lefties would just say all this, I mean, they've done it. I've talked about it on this show. Noah Feldman says it, yeah. 1787 Constitution, all you conservatives, all you people that talk about this, we had a federal republic, states' rights, all that stuff. You know what? All that's true. But then we had the 14th Amendment, and isn't it grand? 
This is what Randy Barnett does too, right? So this is the issue. The, the conservatives really are, I mean, these people, a lot of them are dopes. This is, I hate it because, you know, that's on our side. But these people really aren't that smart when they do stuff like this. He says, this is wrong on both counts. As Adams itself made abundantly clear, it was the state constitutions that laid the foundation, not the federal convention. There is no reason at all to believe that had the Americans not ditched the 1776 constitution for the 1787 one, they would have rewritten the Republican constitutions and installed monarchs. Uh, now, again, it's not, you could say 1776 if you're looking at when it was drafted. Um, now, Hamilton certainly wanted it. He wanted a kind of elected monarchy. There was certainly a push from some. This is what the Jeffersonians were interested in. You know, the, there's this push. So um, certainly that could be the case. There were some people that wanted it. And how does Eastman arrive at the conclusion that a republic had never existed in the U.S. at a national level? She never explains this, but appears to take the rather odd position that a confederation cannot be a republic. Both James Madison and Adams contradict Eastman on this. In essay number 20 of the Federalist Papers, Madison refers to the confederation known as the Dutch Republic as simply a republic. Adams uses similar terminology in his defense of the constitutions, referring to the Dutch confederation as the Republic of the United Provinces of the Low Countries. Indeed, in the Federalist, Madison referred to the Dutch state as both a confederation and a republic. He was correct in doing so. Most confederations are republics, and like the Articles of Confederation, the Dutch Republic's constitution provided for an extremely decentralized political structure based largely on a consensus model. The American Confederation created in 1776 was clearly a republic, but that wasn't what made American Republican either. Had that confederation been abolished altogether and replaced with nothing, Americans would have, had, would have continued to live under Republican governments. And of course, this is entirely true. And I'm going to talk about that this week when I look at this issue of secession and what that would mean. Uh, because his last paragraph has that in it. He says, the same is true today, of course. Each and every U.S. state is a republic in its own right with its own Republican constitution. Each and every state even has the characteristics we associate with good republics, separation of powers, a bill of rights, an executive subject to impeachment, an independent judiciary, and regular elections. This was true before supporters of the new constitution started pretending that they were inventing the whole framework. Now, again, they weren't pretending that. Even in 1787 and 1788, they, didn't, they weren't pretending that at all. They spoke of the federal system over and over again, and the states were the bulwark of this, and even Hamilton did this. They weren't, they weren't pretending that at all. This is a little bit... Shoddy history right there. Were this enormous federal government to be abolished, the state governments would continue being republics. There's no reason to assume otherwise. And again, that was argued in the ratification process. So the founding generation understood all of this. It's just that we've gotten this shift with Lincoln and then, of course, with some conservative, quote-unquote, historians who distort things. Even some leftists do this, but the conservatives really are the issue. And I'll talk more about that when it comes to Lincoln this week. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.